When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Quick word of congratulations to Steve Hickson. He is the winner of the Timponi giveaway. Thank you to all of you who support our work here. It really is the foundation of our business. Um, I've been messaging, emailing back and forth with Steve about the board. He said that he's 64 years old, in good shape, still surfs two to three times a week. So I thought that was pretty cool. At the age of 40, I uh, envy that lifestyle and aspire to it in the next 24 years. So thank you for that, Steve. Congratulations. The Timponis will certainly get you dialed in on a custom that is perfect for you and the waves you surf. All right, enjoy today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by realwatersports.com. You know they have become our retail surfboard partner in recent months, and they're doing something pretty incredible this month um, for Cyber Monday, November 29th, the Monday after Thanksgiving, they're offering $100 off any surfboard purchase. So that goes to uh, stock boards that are listed on their website or are on the floor in their store, or even custom boards. If you wanna go in and order something from one of their surfboard suppliers, order it custom, they will give you that $100 credit towards that purchase as well. So go to realwatersports.com, peruse their entire inventory. They can ship surfboards to anywhere in the world for one low flat shipping rate, and they are guaranteed to show up at your door blemish free. I'm thrilled to be able to share this resource with you and the smoking deal. So if you've had your eye on a board, just wait until November 29th, pull the trigger then, get the board you want, and save 100 bucks. Realwatersports.com. Cortez Bank is the scariest, most violent big wave spot I have ever surfed. On this day, I was taking a break from surfing and doing water safety on my PWC. I saw Derek go down on a big one, so I started to track the wave. Following the white water line closely, I knew generally where he was going to come up, but as I buzzed around that zone, I started to panic because I didn't see him come up for a really, really long time. He eventually popped up right next to my ski, just a few feet away. When I initially swung around to see his face, he looked like a ghost. I didn't know it then, but he was unconscious and unresponsive, like he was frozen in time. Knowing we were square in the impact zone with another set approaching, I screamed at Derek to grab the sled. All he had to do was put out his arm and grab it. I kept screaming, Derek, grab the sled. I yelled at him for so long that I finally realized he was out cold. Get the sled, I yelled again with only a few seconds left. I knew I had to do something drastic. So I put the ski into reverse and rammed the rescue sled into his head. I screamed again, grab the sled. Still, nothing. 
I was trying to give him every moment I had, but as this massive wave approached us, I gave the ski a little gas to separate myself and safely go over the top of the wave. I watched in horror as Derek went back over the falls in slow motion in the worst part of the wave. I still remember looking at his face as he went up and over, eyes half open. I'll never be able to unsee that look of pure and utter helplessness. Then he disappeared. It was a big set with multiple waves, so I had to wait for all the turbulence to pass before I could look for him. Every second that went by, I knew my chances of finding him decreased. After the set, I returned to the zone where I last saw him. He was gone. I couldn't find him anymore. So much time went by, easily 10 minutes. I'd zigzag all through the Cortez whitewater line, looking for any sign of movement. And when I reached the end of it, I would haul all the way back outside and start all over. Just when I was about to jet back to the boat to call in more help, I saw a black speck way on the inside and almost drifting around to the backside of the massive underwater shoal. It was Derek. When I got to him, he was floating on his side. The inflatable wetsuit Derek was wearing had flotation, but only in the back, so he was leaning over at an awkward tilt. No surfboard, no movement. Although he was conscious and breathing, Derek wasn't responsive and wouldn't look at me. I helped Derek onto the sled and took him back to safety. When I dropped him off at the boat, I asked him again, Derek, tell me you're okay. He didn't answer. That was a piece written by Sean Dollar, and it's an excerpt from the prologue of Derek Dunphy's new biographical photo book, Waking Up in the Sea. Dunphy is a big wave surfer and photographer from La Jolla, California, and this book tells that story, a story that he hasn't actually ever shared before. The story about Derek waking up in the sea is used as a narrative lens for Derek to reflect on his surfing life, the people, the experiences, the preparations that brought him to that very nearly life-ending moment. And while that moment took place after everything else that is written in this book, it has reshaped everything that Derek actually experienced in this book, his life, past, present, and future. And so I wanted to discuss all of this with Derek and also to glean any insights that he might offer so that we might carry those with us from his otherworldly exploits. So, without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Derek Dunphy. is centered around an incident that happened nine years ago 
You say that it's also the first telling of the incident. Why did it take you so long to tell the story? It was really traumatic experience and I didn't really, it took me a long time to really understood what, what happened to me. I've had a lot of concussions and that one was, you know, my worst, you know, traumatic kind of experience. And for one, I was trying to be a, you know, kind of like a, a sponsored professional surfer and there wasn't as much talk around um, concussions, head trauma and stuff like that. So I didn't want to start coming out with a lot of this stuff um, for one, just because of my ego and my pride and trying to just keep up this, um, I don't know, just like image of just uh, being, you know, a big wave surfer and going strong. I wanted to just, you know, uh, keep the momentum going, you know, and, and a lot of times when I stopped to reflect on it, it was so traumatizing that it's, it was hard for me to kind of go, go deep into. And so when I wanted to, when I wrote this book, it was really a way for me to kind of explain what happened to me because <clears throat> a lot, a lot of times it's hard for me to explain to people what, what happened. And um, in, in terms of like drowning and concussions and stuff like that, because a lot of times I can't articulate, it was just hard to share, you know, you know, with people. So I really, you know, just pushed it down, which, um, is, is, you know, kind of the wrong thing to do. And I'm not sure if I'm getting off track here, but in terms of you, um, you know, it did take time for me to like actually figure out what happened. And part of me pushing that down is like, I didn't, I, I, for a while was really grateful that Sean Dollar rescued me and saved my life because I wasn't paying him as water safety and he saved me as a friend and he spent extra time looking for me when he could have, should have been looking for the people he was paid to watch. And so part of that is like, I spent time thanking him for what happened, but not never asking him the details. Okay. And so finally, when I was ready to talk to him about the details, which took a while, because I had time where I'd like times where I would get drunk and I'd be like, dude, I'm so thankful you saved me and stuff like that. And then finally got to a point where I'm like, I really want to know because there's stuff that I think happened. And then for me to actually talk to Sean about it, get the details about, you know, for example, like I was like, man, I wonder if when I was floating, if I was screaming for him, like floating, like after right. 30 right. minutes, no, he found me face down. And, and so I wanted to know these details because that's how I remember it, but it was so spacey. And so it took me a while to figure out what happened to me. And I had to talk with Sean over um, a lot of periods of time to like kind of figure out what happened to me. And I, and even like throughout that time, it became harder and harder to like comprehend because it was worse than I remembered because I didn't know I was knocked out. Um, I got knocked out after my wipeout. And that was something that he never really even like told me because the whole thing was so crazy that, you know, the whole experience of me getting knocked out after my wipeout and that made it worse. Cause I didn't even know that. I thought it was all really bad. I have dreams of it every night where I, you know, drown and die. And it's been just, you know, haunting me. So there's stuff like that where I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's worse than I thought. Um, and you, and I don't know if you want to go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm curious, was Sean traumatized by the experience? He actually, for one, I'm, I'm sure he, he was because he knew it was bad. We've talked about it because it was a really bad situation. Um I should have had paid water safety. So he wasn't, he wasn't put in that. Yeah. But for one, I'm very fortunate because he's been through a lot of concussion and head trauma stuff. 
And he was there for me to like really explain stuff in ways that I needed to hear it to help me because uh, all these concussions I've had, it's made me really just up and down emotional, emotionally, yeah. harder to con like harder to con control my emotions. Every time I see these brain doctors and do stuff that like I get kind of bad news and it's hard for me to to take in. And so I get really, you know, emotional and sad and he's there to like really lift me up. So there yeah. was times where I was just like kind of going down these dark paths, like feeling sorry for myself. And he really lifted me up. So I know he was traumatized by it. But throughout this process, he's been kind of on this. Um, that's actually a good thing. I should actually think of how it's it's affected him. Um, I would just but, imagine like he can certainly relate based on what you're saying. He could certainly relate yeah. to what you were going through. So that puts him in kind of a different position. But if you were, for example, just driving down the five freeway and you mm -hmm. witnessed an accident and you went in and saved the people who are so close to death, you know, that would traumatize you as the savior yeah. in that scenario. And it's not exactly analogous because again, you're just minding your own business in that scenario where Sean actually is out there to do a job, whether or not you paid him, he is there to do a job. And um, so maybe he would be less yeah. traumatized because he's kind of prepared and he's been through scenarios, but yeah. I'm just curious to see somebody come back close to death. Yeah. Um, and we're really close. Like I mean, me for one, me and him go way back, like with surfing Mavericks, and we were alternates in the Eddie Cow um, together, and we'd stand next to each other. We were just like really close, and so this was something that um, I think that he took on two roles. You know, he saved me, and then he's like my psychiatrist or, or psychologist. Yeah. You know, he's helping me through it, but he's also been through some stuff with his own head trauma, and we're so close that we were really open. I was open to him about how bad I felt at times. And it's like, I've always been consistently happy and doing well, but this emotional up and down and um, there's just certain things that it was hard for me to kind of deal with. And he really uh, encouraged me to see some like brain doctors and see some people get some help and, and really get a grip on um, just the fact like that I might not ever be like, okay, like hundred percent and that it's okay to be like that, but yeah. to get this help, um, I can get, you know, like for one, I'm hundred, like, I'm really happy right now. I'm really Good. stoked. When I was writing this book, it was a tough time. That's when I was talking about texting him. Um, and when, you know, and part of that is I was going through just this experience and, you know, I wasn't really talking to anyone else. I wrote this book kind of on my own and, and it was really hard to, to go in to these, just traumatizing experiences. So I was, he was one of the only people I was talking to kind of throughout this time. Um, when you started by explaining why it took so long to tell the story, one of the things that you said was you wanted to kind of protect some of that bravado or machismo that you had carried with you through the first, you know, 20 or 30 years of your life. Um, did now that you've been vulnerable about it, how has that been received? It's been really, really good. Um, okay, good. You know, for one, it's been, um, there's kind of like two sides of it. I mean, like for one, I'm really grateful for social media. People talk talk crap on, about it being kind of toxic at times, but at, like there is at times I feel like so much love and support on Instagram when I do share this stuff and I'm vulnerable. If I, like, for example, I went to the brain doctor and went to these people and 
found out that my right eye functions at about 20%, 25%. So I, like, I can't focus it. And that's part of my nausea, my like, it's not vertigo, but you know, I was just feeling weird stuff at times, but I figured out what, um, what it is. And I'm sorry, like, see, this is with my brain. I'm sorry, what was the question again? Just about how the vulnerability was received. You were oh, yeah, so yeah. worried about protecting oh, yeah. the so, so what I was getting to, um, and this is stuff with my brain, my short-term memory, but um, I was I was getting help and I was sharing this stuff on social media, just my right eye not working well and getting through it. And I was like really insecure about sharing it on my social media because it's mostly, <clears throat> mostly my big wave stuff. But I had the best response. Like, yeah. like hundreds of people commenting, sending me messages about support and ways that they've found um, you know, stuff that they've gone through and things that have helped them get better. So I found out like there's so many ways that people have gotten through concussion stuff. And one way I've, I've just really connected this network of people through social media that's made me feel uh, really special and more confident about sharing kind of what I've been through. And part of what I'm lucky is like, I'm, I'm happy right now. I'm good. You know, there's mm -hmm. been times in the past where I didn't know what I was going through and um, I wasn't like, it, you know, for example, I don't drink like alcohol. Um, I have a drink every few weeks, but I've just learned that I can't really control my emotions as much. And yeah. not that I was an angry drunk because I was actually like a happy drunk. I just realized that if I'm hungover for days and the way that that uh, impacts my really my emotions. So um, just with sharing, you know, that stuff on social media was really helpful. But uh, there is some people that kind of make come up to me and make me feel like they're like, hey, you OK, little buddy, you know, really? like make me or no, just like, you all right, you're going through it and kind of like a different way that because um, I'm really open with people. And I like when people are honest with me, like, oh, man, I I got in this car wreck and I'm going through this. And yeah. that's, you know, you know what I really value. And um, yeah, I think people want. Obviously we want like um, our idols to be superheroes in a sense. You want to see people achieve these great yeah. feats, but even more than that, you want your idols to be relatable and you want them yeah. to be human. And so if you're doing all the superhero stuff, but not relatable in any way, it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard for, it yeah, doesn't resonate with people. So if you're then vulnerable in addition to that, that's yeah. where people connect. Well, and, and part of that is it's it's really awesome sharing this stuff and, and putting it out there. But I I actually don't really want to be like the main voice or I'm trying not to take this on as like a, a role or a career, like being yeah. a speaker for it, because um, I'm, I actually talk to people every day that are going through it and stuff. But the more I put it on social media, it becomes more of my everyday thoughts mm -hmm. and it can kind of make up more of kind of. Who I feel I am and what, what I am. And when I like think more about my, my trauma, the fact that my eye doesn't work, all these bad things, it's just, it's not good for me. And so it's I really just, and so like it, if I just take on that role and explaining to people every day that what I've been through, cause like I said, I'm doing really, really good. Um, I can, um, like I'm hundred percent, I surf every day, <clears throat> but that's just kind of one thing that, um, yeah, I'm not sure if that makes sense. It so, does so. make sense. And I think that part about what what parts to reveal versus which parts to keep as your own private life is a real yeah. interesting thing that we all have to navigate with social media because yeah. you really do have to keep certain parts of your life private so that you can 
uh, I don't know, just not just relax and not have everybody yeah. chiming in and have an opinion. So that's a tough predicament for you. That'll be one that you gotta, that'll yeah. be the next phase of figuring out because there is tremendous value in sharing portions of this, but I don't know which portions you keep. Running. Yeah. And that's, that's it. I mean, I love sharing it. That's why I wrote this book, but the whole book is not about trauma. It's like, I, no, had, a, it's not. I had a very, um, just incredible, happy, uh, big wave career and surf life. And I love sharing kind of what got me to, you know, the top of big wave surfing. So those are things that like, it's all really, you know, positive. There's just this kind of ending. And I like to share how I dealt with it with my photography and uh, just kind of how I, you know, evolved. And I've kind of even, you know, changed a lot, you know, since then. Yeah. Um, I do want to, if you don't mind, I mean, you said you're down to go deep. I do want to talk a little bit about the incident itself. Um, and I want people to actually read it in the book to get the whole story, yeah. but let's just tease one <clears throat> aspect of it here. Okay. Um, through the book, you talk a lot about significant wipeouts, concussions, passing out, being saved by in the last moment by ski drivers. But in all of those scenarios, you talk about never giving up, mm -hmm. but the story that the title of the book is based on is about a time where you actually did give up. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, was that decision to give up? Was it completely involuntary? And, no, it was um, conscious. No, was that was conscious. Con so walk, yeah. me, walk me through the decision to give up. No, it was, it was a conscious decision, decision, you know, like, uh, I wasn't really sure when I got knocked out, what happened, you know, and people can read about that whole experience. But, you know, when I came to, I went up and over the falls of a, of a huge wave and went straight to the bottom. It felt like I went to the bottom of the earth. And when I hit the bottom, it felt like I was paralyzed. Like I hit so hard, I couldn't move. And since I already been knocked out, I was unsure of where I was or what happened. I've been practicing breath holds. There's a lot of stuff, meditation. There's a lot of stuff I've practiced in the past. And so I actually felt good underwater. And so it wasn't a panic mode. It was something that I felt like, cause I felt paralyzed and I couldn't move. I really just felt like I was you know, I, I met my match and it wasn't like this scary thing. So consciously kind of to answer your just, you know, I just made the decision to not swim up. So instead of to break it real down, I'm like way down. I'm like, I'm not swimming up. So instead of swimming up and thinking about that, I meditated and just relaxed into it. And I had no <clears throat> flashbacks. I had nothing. It felt really good. I've meditated before. And I had a, like one kind of pretty good half full breath before I went over the falls and I didn't inhale water. So I had like, I'd been training for this. And so I was down there and I was just relaxed into it. I didn't try to swim. And I had already pulled my, these things, my inflated vest. And I always felt like, I, and at that point when I had given up, I was underwater like 40 feet. And it felt like I'd surf Jaws, I'd surf Mavericks, and it felt like I was 30 or 40 feet deep. And at that point, moment, even kind of when I made that decision, it felt like I went into an underwater waterfall and went wow. another 30 feet deep. So I was like in some rip current and I went like instantly, it felt like free fall 30 feet deep. Another Because Cortez Bank is a mountain range. I don't really understand where I was, but it sucked me down even deeper. And so I was even more just committed to my decision. I'm like, I'm, you know, and, and, you know, I write about the rest of my book, but that decision was totally conscious. And 
uh, that part of why I didn't like sharing this specific part um, is because people kind of look at me crazy when they're like, how'd it feel? What happened? Because I was conscious for probably even 15 seconds when I was like blacked out, it felt like, hmm. and, and it felt like really good. You know, it was like this just like happy, loving, going to sleep, euphoric thing. And since I wasn't scared and I just really, um, yeah, it was like a crazy, and I've read into this type of stuff afterwards, like kind of going into the afterlife. If you're, there's a lot to it, dude. So I just like, yeah, but at the time I just, um, I wasn't scared. I wasn't panicked. And, um, it's real. That's what tripped me out. And for like, when I was writing the book, this moment I'm telling you about, I would break down and cry if I told anyone about for probably three or four months. Yeah. So the fact that I'm telling you and not crying just shows that I'm getting stronger. Yeah. And uh, it does, there's stuff with it, you know, and that's, I don't know. So I'm like, I feel good that like being able to talk about that moment because that's what tripped me out. The, the choice to like not swim up, but yeah. I don't regret it because I was so fucking worked and um you know it's not that i was unprepared but cortez bank is just like something i haven't really experienced the underwater i wonder whatever i went through you know i wonder if that giving up actually allowed you to survive whereas if you would have been frantically realizing the position you were in you would have depleted yeah. yourself you know yeah and that's part of it you know like i and and it took a while talking to Sean to figure out about the knockout because um, it was really confusing. I didn't know what happened because I, I don't know. There's a lot to that. I, I was conscious when I pulled my vest. But I don't know if my board hit me or if I had a shallow water blackout because um, when Sean came up to me after that, I was face down. And that was before. I mean, there, people can read about that. Um, but it was a conscious decision. That's That's what was tough for me to kind of reconcile, not even reconcile to tell people. Oh, okay. You know, even people, you know, people I love, they're like, what happened? And <clears throat> to tell people that I just relaxed into a blackout, you yeah. know, is like, is kind of bizarre. You know, most people freak out when they're underwater and expect when you drown that you're going to inhale water, you know, but I just like, just held my breath until I passed out. And so it kind of gives, and everyone's got different experiences with these types of like drowning experiences. But I think that um, with what I went through, you know, helped, I, you know, help for when Sean found me, at least. Yeah. I'm going to read just a portion of one page of your book um, regarding concussions. You said the aftermath would become all too familiar, an all too familiar pattern, nausea for days, a splitting headache for at least a week, and then increasing signs of long-term effects. Each new incident, whether it was hitting my head on the reef at off the wall, a fluke body surfing slam at wind and sea, or a face plant into the cold water slab in Canada would make my symptoms increasingly worse. There was a memory loss, a wild mood swings, wild mood swings, sudden fits of rage, bright light would trigger things, the weather would affect me, and each of these symptoms occurred and each time these symptoms occurred, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I was watching myself um, freak out without having any ability to control it. I'm curious, 
I don't, I never heard about concussions in big wave surfing until relative, I mean, five years ago, maybe even, mm -hmm. was it discussed within the community when you were getting into the big wave scene? No, never. Yeah. It really wasn't something that was like, I don't know. No one, <clears throat> no one ever talked about concussions really for like until in my circles until I think, uh, Sean dollar had his, but I had heard about, um, since I've been spending time in Hawaii for a while, uh, there's a surfer named Mahanu. He's like a really amazing surfer. And I think he had a bad wipeout at Jaws and he's just really good friends with all the, all the guys over there. And, um, he had a similar, he had something worse than mine actually. And so I, I heard about that, but beside, but he wasn't in my circle. So it didn't like really impact me personally or socially. Like I didn't hear about it all the time, but Sean Dollar uh, was someone that um, he had, he had a bad concussion where I think he actually hit his head on a rock. It was slightly different than mine. And, uh, but he started being open about talking about it. And I know he had a tough time at first, but he's been so open about it. Um, he got me starting to kind of talk about it, but up until Sean, it's really, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to remember because that's one of the things when I was growing up as a, just a young surfer. I mean, there wasn't many things I thought as a big way surfer that could slow me down right. or, or hold me back besides getting paralyzed um, or drowning or something because I mean, that wasn't something that I ever really thought to train or prepare for, you know, but with that said, I wasn't, this whole, my whole career trying to like prove myself in a way that I was going on a lot of bad waves and getting more concussions every wave I went for. Um, even the ones I talk about, like um, you reading that quote's great because there, there are a few of those concussions that off the wall, like I was trying to be safe, but no one was out and it was maybe like a ceiling high wave or bigger and no one was out and I was deep, but I can't help myself. And I tried to pack it, went up and over the falls on my head but I was, no one was out and I just can't help myself sometimes. And at Win and See, I was just sitting in the water and this little wave hit me, uh, gave me a concussion. Like I was, I felt like I got slapped in the face and there's certain things that, um, you know, the way it affects me, I, I kind of forgot your question, um, actually. Well, it was just about the awareness in the community. And, yeah, nobody, yeah, and there was, I think nobody, yeah. nobody was discussing it because nobody even knew what it was. And even the NFL, I feel like the NFL only started discussing it five years ago. And they, unfortunately, the NFL was actively suppressing the information yeah. because they would be held liable. Yeah. But in the big wave community, it was just, yeah, it wasn't even a conversation to be had. Um, is there a way to kind of train against it or to plan for it or to prepare your body or your mind? Um, to avoid it. Um, I mean, in, in big wave surfing, I think it's just about being really smart and reading the swells. Okay. And if you are chasing every swell, just to like be prepared to not surf a lot. Because it's just like any session at your local break, you're, if you know, you pull up and it's sunny and glassy, you're out there. But yeah. if you pull up and it's like the day after a storm, it looks funky. It's not going to be breaking the right way. It's kind of like that. Like you can just read it. Um, it's it's more difficult now with all the cameras <clears throat> you know like let's just say that they're supposed to be um the best swell of the year and everyone's going to be there and all the media people are going to be there and you go out and it's not perfect it's 
semi blown out where if it was your home break, you probably wouldn't surf blown out yeah. anything, anything really. I mean, unless you really are dying to surf, but if you go out and there's all these cameras, you know, you could probably get a wave and maybe get on, you know, some sort of social media or some, some website. And that's your, like, that's your job, you know? And if you're a good surfer, you can, you're like, Oh, I can maybe get one or two. Right. But that's just like one side of it that um, can get tricky. Uh, but if you're smart and, and you want to just, just play it, play it smart. There's a lot of guys that, that do play it smart. Like Kai Lenny, he doesn't go out on bad days really. And yeah. when it's good, he goes out for like six hours and gets a lot of really good waves. Yeah. Um, and he, he actually wears a helmet too. You know, he, he I was going to ask. Yeah. Cause we don't see helmets in big wave nearly as much as we see them in barreling waves. Right. Well, because I mean, part of that, I've I have spoken to some big wave surfers, and if you get a fifty foot lip to the head, I mean, a helmet could help you, you know. But you're gonna get a concussion, a concussion, no matter what. If you're gonna get a lip to the head, like thirty foot or bigger, I feel like whether it affects you that day, you get a headache and it goes away, or affects you in a week where you just kind of get car sick for no reason. Yeah. And there's ways that it impacts you that I've really learned that it might not be that day. It could be days later and in a weird way. And for me, it's my eye. I know someone that lost their sense of taste and smell and there's different things that it can affect you. And um, yeah, it's picking your moments. I'd never yeah, that, heard that before. Yeah. I never thought yeah. about that, but you're absolutely right. That's the way to mitigate it. Um, because yeah, if you're, chasing swells around the world, you show up at the spot and you've, you know, got a limited window and it happens to yeah. not be perfect conditions. Most guys yeah. are still going to paddle yeah. out because they spent the money and the effort to get yeah. there. And yeah. that's where you're going to find yourself yeah. in a bad situation. Cause I, yeah. Cause I'd still be surfing big waves if I didn't have these concussions probably. Yeah. You know, totally. if I didn't have like these crazy amount of ones I did and I was still doing well, I just, I just understand that I've hit my limit. Yeah. And if I hadn't, it's not like I would have never done it. And even I talk to big wave surfers now and I don't ever, I'm not this downer guy that's going to be like, you got to be careful, wear a helmet. There's a lot of stuff that these, a lot of these surfers have spent their whole life getting to this moment and they're really good surfers. So a lot of them can make that right decision. But at times, if you have a big sponsor that's paying you a lot of money, which, you know, even for me, if I had a huge paying sponsor, it's, I don't know. There's, there's just different things. Yeah. So I just, I, I trust them to make the right decision decisions. And, uh, I, I'm kind of here to here. To, I try to be open so that they, they kind of see what's happening. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. You talked book, about, you talked about in the book and we kind of talked about it here actually about, um, sharing this story and becoming vulnerable and shedding some of the bravado in the book, you said, if my initial goal was to travel the world and become the best, it soon evolved into being a humble and grateful witness just to see what I saw, enjoy the amazing waves I did catch and be part of such a special network of remarkable humans for me felt like a lifetime achievement in itself. Do you feel like that transition into humility made you a better surfer or made you more vulnerable in the sea? Well, for one, that's like one of my most favorite quotes of the book, you know, like I feel that and I got emotional just writing it, you know, because it's true. Like I'm I'm so grateful for 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 one, just being alive, 
like I'm lucky. I was making a lot of, you know, if you read my book, I was, I was surfing, I was trained and I was surfing big waves for a long time and I should have had paid water safety more. And there's ways I could have been smarter with communication with people on the cliff. And I did everything I thought was doing right. But, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the concussions, you know, one of them where I was dizzy for six and dizzy nauseous for about six months and had after effects, like even all sorts of other stuff. Um, that one's like really scared me. And, but I kept going and kept having more concussions, but that, you know, there's been a few that really made me think about my long-term health and whether I was going to be like a functioning human when I'm older. And like, if I could speak my name or, uh, work a regular job, cause I understand surfing it's, these have been my goals, but, um, there will be a point, you know, points where I I'm working right now, but these are thoughts at the time where I'm like, man, am I going to be able to like, be a normal person. I don't want to. And um, yeah, so those are just stuff that was kind of going on. Do you, that transition though, I think it came, if I remember from the book, right after you won the XXL big wave award. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of like all that buildup was proving myself or proving yeah, yourself. Yeah. And once you prove yourself, yeah, then you can kind of, um, yeah, but that was validated. But that was a tricky moment too. And I'm not sure if I even answered your last question now that you said that, but, um, you know, well, but the, the question of, yeah. was, the question was coming after that and kind of having humility and yeah. just being grateful. Did that humility make you a better surfer? Yes. I think okay. it helped me throughout life, just being grateful. And I yeah. found some of my best waves in big wave surfing was when I stopped trying to be competitive with certain people, because yeah. I was friends totally. with everyone at Mavericks, like everyone in the lineup, there might be people I didn't speak to as much, but there's always one or two people that would kind of get the waves and I would almost find myself wanting to be competitive, but instead of being competitive, I would, um, I changed my thought process where I'd be like, um, stoked for them. I see them catch a wave and I, instead of maybe not telling them that they got a good wave because I was competitive and I did, yeah. I was a weirdo, I was a weirdo. I would go up to them and just go, Hey, that was such a rad wave. And they'd almost be kind of weird that, I went out of my way to tell him that was an epic wave. So stuff like I found helped me with my big wave surfing instead of me resenting people in the lineup just because they, they surf better than me or whatever. I would try to just like be friends with them and be like, Oh, like let them know I'm trying to learn from them or something like that. And That's... when I was, you know, there's stuff like that that helped me cause I, I'm not a good competitor. And when I get in my head like that way, it's just like downhill. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll, I won't catch any waves. Yep. So I'll really try to enjoy my time in the lineup and cause it is surfing and like over time, um, spending times with, uh, spending time with guys like Zach Wormout, um, and other people, even like Evan Slater, or whatever, there's certain surfers that have, uh, really installed or instilled in me that, um, you know, this is surfing and we do love it and we want to go home and, you know, have a beer with our family or, you know, we're going home. It's not like just this crazy thing. And so I try to enjoy my time out at, you know, out there in my relationships also, which has helped my surfing. I agree. Like I experienced that even just surfing, uh, crappy beach breaks at home where I walk, I paddle out with this competitor mindset where I'm <laughs> mad dogging people and I'm positioning yeah. and I don't have fun. Even if I surf, yeah. 
beyond my peak, like uh, my potential, I'm not having fun. And as soon as I make that mental shift that you're talking about, where sometimes it's somebody else complimenting my wave, somebody who I was mad dogging, then gives me a hoot. And I'm like, oh, they're a nice person. Maybe I should stop being a dick and I should be a nice person too. And then I start making small talk with somebody in the lineup. And it's not at all about performance. It's now just about the, uh, the experience or the ritual. I have infinitely more fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that was part of that's that, that helped me grow a lot too, you know, just, just being out there and being supportive of, of other people. And, um, you know, from where I came, like you could read about it in my book, but I, I wasn't always trying to be a big wave surfer, but it happened kind of really naturally. And so I was, um, there was never much pressure on me in the lineup. And so, you know, and since I was friends with Zach and a lot of these kind of local, a few of the, the earlier guys, they introduced me to everybody. And, you know, I'm friends with a lot of guys still to this day. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. I'm super excited to finally be able to share Whoop with you. I started working with them and using the Whoop strap almost a year ago. And when they first reached out, I had already seen John John Florence wearing one. Um, I think that he was just starting to really get into cycling at that point. So I'd see him wearing it on his bike. I'd see him wearing it in the water while he was surfing. And when I talked to the team at Whoop, they actually explained that although it is a wearable fitness tracker, it's actually designed around the concept of recovery. So yes, it tracks exertion, but helping understand how your body recovers actually allows you to get more out of your workouts. So we're finally launching this partnership because Whoop just released their all new Whoop 4.0 strap, and it is the most advanced fitness wearable on the market. You wear it on your wrist. It has biometric tracking that tracks skin temp, blood oxygen, and of course heart rate, and much, much more. It is smaller and smarter than previous versions. It's so sleek that it fits under your wetsuit sleeve. Of course, it's waterproof. So the strap itself doesn't actually have a screen. There's no buttons. There's no annoying notifications. It's just constantly collecting your body's data 24-7. And then it connects to the app, which is on your phone, and gives you invaluable insights into the very big picture of your overall health. These vitals are super easy to share with your physician, your coach, your trainer, your PT, whomever. Think of it as a personalized digital fitness and health coach. Our promo code is the word SURF, where you'll save 15% on your membership, and you'll also get that WHOOP 4.0 strap completely free. WHOOP.com, W-H-O-O-P, WHOOP.com. And then use our promo code to both support us and then, of course, save 15% on your membership. The code is the word SURF on whoop.com, promo code SURF. Thank you and enjoy. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. 
more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Can you tell me about the 2012 Swell at uh, Cloud Break? Because we were all, I think, watching that event online, or a lot of us were, and um, you were there. And at that point in 2012, it seems like you had already recognized some of your limitations you had also kind of started to understand the reality of concussions. So what did you decide to do that day when the WSL called off the event? Yeah, so I went there and I, I knew it was going to be like a nuclear swell. Like, and I almost didn't believe what, what was going to happen, but I was ready for it. And so I went there thinking that if I sat wide of the pack, because everyone was so competitive, I went and there, I went and uh there's a lot of really good big wave surfers there like everyone was there and part of even my game plan is like i'm gonna go sit wide and i'll hopefully get like this widest chip shot and get the barrel of my life and just sit really wide so i don't get don't get caught inside and part of what makes it easier for me to travel um even during those times in my concussions was i was bringing cameras and writing every day so if I didn't feel like I wanted to surf, I could document and write. And those are things that just help me when I travel, like my, my mindset. And I'm like, I'm going to go and hopefully chip shot. I set low expectations, even though I'm 100% trained. And I just, uh, I brought the boards. And so, you know, that, mor- that day, they called off the contest. And I, I couldn't believe it when they did call off the contest. Um, you know, but for one, it was... <clears throat> I can be a good example why it might've been a good call. I had a concussion that day that where I was dizzy for six months yeah. and I'm prepared and trained right. and I had a cautious approach. So that's maybe, you know, at the time I'm like, Oh my God, but uh, looking back, you know, I was as prepared as can be and I got super fucked up. Uh, so that morning or that day they called the contest off and <clears throat> I went out, I went out and jumped off the boat and sat wide. And I think I caught, uh, one s- small wide one. And when I was, uh, let me think back. Yeah. So I was sitting wide. I got one wide one where I think I got to my feet, did two pumps and kicked out, like not even a completed wave. So I barely got to my feet, but I just really wanted to get to my feet so I could just lock into a big one and feel, feel good. I hadn't caught a plane. I hadn't caught a wave since I got off the plane and I'm on a bigger board. I think I was on a 9-0, <clears throat> like a 9-0 Stu Kenson thruster. And so I was sitting wide. Uh, let me think here. So I was, yeah, so I caught that wave and I kicked out. And part of my plan was to sit, like I said, sit wide and be cautious. So I caught that wave, went out and sat next to a jet ski and a bunch of the boats. And I was talking to him and I'm like, hey, guys, like, what are you seeing? 
And I kind of lost focus and was just kind of watching the waves. And all of a sudden, all the boats and jet skis just fucking hauled ass to the channel. Like they all start hitting the throttle. And I look up and there's a monster set coming. But I was in the channel next to the boats and the jet skis. And they're like going, they're fucking gunning it. And so I'm like, holy fuck, I'm going to get caught. I start paddling and I'm paddling fast. I'm paddling faster, but I'm in the channel and I'm thinking I'm kind of safe, but this place is crazy. And I go over like the first wave and there's the next wave is so fucking big and it's already catching everyone inside. And I'm in the channel. And at this point, I'm like, holy fuck, like it's coming at me and it's coming at me. And next thing I know, it's like, I'm like, it's going to fucking direct hit. It felt like it was vortexing on the in Like when cloud break hits this outer, bigger kind of section, the whole channel barrels where they normally sit and take the photos. Yeah. So where I was kind of, and where they kind of even, like they won't um, anchor the boats when it's that big of a swell right there because that's where you get barreled through. So I happen to be right in the spot that, was kind of like the slab inside double up, like in the channel. And I thought I was gonna make it, but the last second, like I said, I was like, fuck, direct hit. And so I was duck diving. This is how close I thought I was gonna make it. I was about to duck dive and the thing just broke faster than I thought. And this entire wave broke faster than like any of the waves that morning. It was a bigger and faster wave, like longer period. And at that time, right when I was duck diving, I think I let, I don't know if I let go or the wave hit me so hard that I went limp, but I, I don't know. I don't even know if I got knocked out. The wave hit me so fucking hard that um, I let go of my board and I might've been knocked out. I don't know what happened, but I don't even remember pulling my vest, but I kind of come to on the surface and I'm inflated and my trunks are on, like my trunks came off me and they're in a knot on my leash. And I'm wearing a wetsuit top. What? And I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm just dizzy as hell. I'm like, what the fuck? But I'm kind of on the surface. And I didn't know what happened. I, I don't remember swimming up, but I must have just, it must have taken me up. So I'm not sure if the wipeout was bad or if, or if it just immediately took me up. Um, but at the time I was wearing a Shane Dorian V1 uh, life inflating suit, which people know at the time um, had like a, it was a pretty sensitive uh, trigger. So at times it can go off. If you have a bad wipeout, if it's hit hard, it can go off. So I, I'm, the wave might have made it, made it go off. Uh, so I'm on the surface and then I like kind of look and there's another fucking mega like 30 foot barrel right in front of me just mowing down and I got caught inside. I didn't even try to put my head underwater. I just held my breath. Wow. And I was so concussed from that that I was just holding my breath and keeping my eyes closed until I was in the channel. And I, I laid in the channel for probably, I'm not sure, maybe like 15 minutes just on my back. Like didn't know, I mean, I knew where I was, but my brain, I, I, I've had concussions, but my brain was not functioning. Like I couldn't think cor correctly or um, I knew something was way off. I'd never had, had this happen before. And I just laid there for a long time. And then finally, um, I didn't even try to get on my board. Finally, I pulled my board in and a guy came up on a ski and was like, jump on. And I barely get on the sled with my board, but, and he's like, all right, let's go. But I was, and I, we were really far from everyone. He's like, hold on, we gotta go. We start hauling ass out, but I'm so weak. I couldn't even hold on with my arms and I just let go. And he just keeps going all the way out. 
And so, so I'm just like left there again. I laid there for probably another 10, 15 minutes and just to get my, my bearings. And I got on my board and I remember just struggling to find my boat. There's like eight boats. And I remember, I think I jumped on a boat with um, a Tavaru boat with maybe one of the Godaskis or Todd Glazer or something. And just, I was just like, let me on your boat. I, I remember just being so confused. I don't think I remembered what boat I came in on or something hmm. like that. Um, but I, and, and for the rest of the day, I mean, that was my, that was the first mega set of the day and I got caught. And so for the rest of the day, um, this is my experience for that day. For the rest of that day, I was on the boat and I was throwing up every, you know, 30 minutes or 20 minutes. And I had, uh, three cameras with me and I always document stuff. I had a wide Lux panoramic film camera. I had a Yashica T4 and I had a Holga film camera. I don't even, and I think that's it. But so I just rotated between those cameras shooting lineups and like thrown up off the side of the boat. Uh, but I, and that's only because I knew it was the most special day and yeah. I had to really, um, you know, document it. I wanted to just lay down all day. But from then, that was my worst one. And probably that one really changed, really changed my life because it changed, it impacted and changed my brain in a way that um, I just wasn't prepared for. And I'm still really still, still, still dealing with. It seems like it also um, made you have a shift to kind of focus your career more on photography at that point as well. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, even through my book, like I realized that I had to commit more to shooting and, you know, I was releasing these big wave photo zines called DECA and that was just like all my big wave photo stuff and I would have photo shows. So I was just kind of telling everyone like, Oh, I'm just really pushing my photography. I'm yeah. shooting more. I'm shooting more when in fact I was scared and concussed and didn't know how to really tell people in the right way. Was, um, so that was 2012. Was there a viable career path for photography? And were you with Volcom at the time? And did they support that? What was that relationship like? Um, I was I was with Volcom until I think like 2013, like August 2013, I think, or 14, one of those. Um, I mean, they're really great. They I was with them since I was a kid. And they started off, you know, I was just really excited to be a part of the team, you know, for one. And then when I won the XXL award, they stepped it up at a time that I needed it, which was really amazing. And I'm, I'm still grateful for that. Um, but I was never honest with them about um, really probably any of my injuries because I didn't want that. I wanted my paycheck. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't tell them even if they called me when I was, you know, I was never really in a deep, dark depression but if they called me and I wasn't feeling good I would probably just say yeah everything's amazing I'm doing great right so and when I, you started to transition into photography that wasn't part of the conversation with them um well I was having photo shows and selling zines and doing kind of different stuff I was creating content and documenting big waves in kind of a different way so it was with Instagram for me to shoot photos and stuff it's great you know like I'm kind of doing it's not like I just fell off and I'm just at my house um, surfing, whatever. I'm, I'm documenting and then also like a lot of, um, you know, some of my favorite media people are, are sharing my stuff. So it was it was kind of working in a way for a little bit. I know it seems like they'd embrace that if that was part of your transition. 
it seems like they would um, like you see guys like Ozzy Wright and even Ryan Birch building boards. It's kind of like they let those guys have an alternative career that they then utilize in their marketing and kind of in building the the story around that surfer. Um, So I think that they would, you know, if it was part of your conversation with them, I would be surprised if they didn't embrace it. Well, a for one, will they um, help at the time, even through Volcom? I'm not sure if they actually like it was in my contract, but they lined me up with someone. I had life insurance. Okay. So they were thinking about life insurance, yeah. you know, and they there was some conversation conversations about that because. Um, throughout my career, uh, more and more big wave surfers were passing. Yeah. And so I think that they were aware and I, I'm not sure if they required me to have life insurance or they actually um, lined me up with a person and made it super easy for me to get it. Yeah. But we had conversations where we were talking about health insurance and stuff because I broke my leg when I was with them. Um, and but part of that, I was lucky because I broke my leg. They knew I broke my leg. But that same year, I won my XXL. Okay. So I was fortunate that it was like, I just worked hard and got so lucky that I won this award and it just kind of worked with my career because everybody's sponsorships are kind of year to year, yeah. it seems like, and you have to just be doing really well building every year. So as you started to transition into photography, um, I know you said you were doing shows and selling prints. Was there a viable career path there? Can you make a living doing that? And were there They're clients? Really, I mean, yeah, I did have, I did, you know, get actually a lot of photo jobs and okay, through different um, surf brands and bikini brands and even like um, activewear brands. I did get a lot of work through that, but I never shared, I never shared it on my social media because I, all I shared on my social was my big wave stuff. So for me to start throwing in like a ton of that st- type of different branded commercial you know, whether it was swimwear or surf stuff, because I'm friends with everybody. And at the time I didn't have sponsors. So I was making some money with it. But for me, um, even for all this stuff, like I feel like my biggest inspiration comes from just like uh, treating it as like an art form and just shooting when I'm inspired and stuff that I love to do. And the more jobs and stuff, I wasn't always trying to go down that photo path because it was work. And the very limited work I got, I understood that, you know, you do have to shoot all day and you have to edit all night and have them photos for, for them the very next morning. And so it's, um, it's just a different work cycle. And so I understood what that was. And as much as I would have loved to be a successful photographer, um, it, it just didn't work out for me. I, I, I would have loved for that to happen. And I actually um, was pursuing photography pretty heavily for a little bit. And a lot of it just came from a passion and, and love for it. And it came from spending my whole life, every trip I went on with a camera and I always shot photos, but I wasn't um, looking at it as like a commercial. It was just like when I was um, a kid, I would bring disposable cameras with me on trips because I wanted to show my family, you know, where and what I was doing. They're just like, and, and I still have, five photo albums full of stuff from my whole life. What's, what's your career path now? Um, you know, well, for one, this book was my biggest life accomplishment. Just like, I'm so proud of this book. And that was my biggest for two years, um, writing this book and uh, coming out with it and really just 
believing in myself as an author and my writing and my viewpoints and uh, being careful with um, what I'm saying and reflecting and trying to just really share. I mean, that, that was really, really scary for me. And so writing this book has been not only my biggest life accomplishment, but um, just one of the best stepping stones. Like I've met such an incredible network of people already from um, I've had a few shows with this book and selling my book and the people I've connected to, because I, I really do share a lot of uh, trauma and, and just everything with it. So I, I think with my, my future, I mean, it's, I want to do everything, you know, I'm not limiting myself to really anything in this book. I, um, I am still writing every single day. I have a lot of cha uh, chapters from this first book that I didn't include because that first book was really focused on my big wave career, yeah. like hundred percent focused. And I have a lot of chapters that weren't focused on that. And so just like every single day, actually I do uh, daily writing um, practice or, or whatever um, journal, not journals or whatever, but I do that like every single day too. So I'm, I'm really trying to push myself creatively and um, I really don't know, not, not sure. Yeah. Do you have any opportunities presented themselves based on the, book um <clears throat> in terms of opportunities um i would say like i have more opportunities now than i've had in years and that only comes with me being more open with my life and putting this book out there and being outside because honestly i was just like um for years just surfing and not really talking to many people about what I was going going through. And now that I've I've spent the last six or eight months pushing my book, um, it's been one of the best things like just ever. Um, yeah. And I'm not even actually sure sure where I was going with that. Um, well, I feel like you. It sounds like just from listening to you talk, uh, the shift into making kind of a business minded entrepreneur, like uh, becoming an entrepreneur is the next kind of step or phase for you because you've built all the relationships, you have all the raw material in terms of actual content, but also in terms of um, life experience that you really just need to now focus it in a specific direction with what you want. And you mm -hmm. can actually, I mean, you can manifest yeah, your own destiny I mean at this point. Whether yeah, you want to I mean, work I have, in the surf industry or or phot photography or whatever, or writing even. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to do everything. That's the thing. I'm really active. I surf every day. I, I write every day. And even with that, like I'm kind of writing another book right now. And Good. I'm like really far along. And there's stuff that I practice every day. I play the piano every single day. Good. And there's a lot of things I do to challenge myself. And I'm really open, you know, like to the future and like just really anything that brings in and not, not stressing about, because for a long time I was worried about my career, what I'm gonna do, yeah. like how I'm gonna, when I meet people, how I introduce myself and, and uh, you know, now I'm really okay with like talking about like where I'm at and kind of what I've been through or whatever. From a practical standpoint, is there a way to make a living off of books, whether you're writing or, or they're photography books? Our books um, this, was a, this was an incredibly challenging process and um, it took me a long time to, to be able to fund this, uh, but it, there is ways to make money, but I've learned so much on the whole book process that now I understand that you have to do everything really smart in terms of packaging, knowing the weight, 
uh, knowing how to ship stuff yep. and knowing how to package it correctly. So it comes and doing stuff affordably. Um, there's so much that I could like, I feel like an expert now, even though I'm not sure if I'm going to do like another, the photo book was really challenging because just um, all that, but um, it's definitely a way you can make money. And I encourage people to, to do it, but understand that this is a way to um, network. It's a stepping stone to meet people that, um, and you'll also realize that there's probably a lot more people that like love and enjoy your work than you realize. And so like for me to like put, and you know, that's what I've realized. And it's been, uh, way more rewarding, not really on the financial side, even though I've been doing well, I've been selling books and I'm so grateful. Um, I've done it slightly different. I sell on my website and then I've just developed my own kind of distribution. I'm in like, uh, 12 or 14 shops right now. Good. Yeah. I think so for listeners, I think the book's phenomenal and thank you. Thank you. I didn't know what I like about it is the way that it's structured I didn't know if it was a coffee table book that just had images with captions. I didn't know if it was going to be more like a, um, you know, writing on every page, like a novel. When it showed up, I thought, oh, it's more of a coffee table book. But then I started reading it and it's actually a combination of both. It is. It's a novel uh, masquerading as a coffee table book, I would say. But the structure of the novel, I think, is phenomenal. Your writing is good, you know, in terms of prose. Every paragraph is very well-written and all that sort of stuff. You could open it to any page and appreciate that story on that page. But the way that it's bookended with the waking up in the sea story and throughout the book kind of references back to that story a number of times, it's just really, really well, it's structured like a really good novel, actually. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's, dude, that means so much to me. And that was my biggest... Um, yeah, like, thank you. I'm really grateful you said that. Like, that's it's great. Really, what you know, I did this, you know, I, I put so much time into this book for, and uh, the writing was even though I spent so much time time doing photos my whole life, writing like and, and those chapters was my most important part of everything, you yeah. know, and that's what I finished first before I laid out the book because I laid out the whole book myself and. So I, when I finished, like when the, when the writing was absolutely finished, um, I started laying it out and then choosing photos. And it would have been really difficult for me to hire someone like a graphic designer because each story is so personal that I was trying to choose photos to match it, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. So it was, that's well, kind of the way, I don't know. Yeah. And so about the photos, um, when I did an initial thumb through, when the book showed up, I'm just thumbing through to look at some of the imagery. I was initially um, not impressed by, like I'd get to a photo that was kind of blurry or out of focus and had a weird composition. I'm like, I don't, I don't know, why would you pick that photo? But then mm -hmm. as I read the story, mm -hmm. the photo made perfect sense, you know, because yeah. it might've yeah. been about a time where you were concussed and everything was blurry totally. in that kind of, uh, that, the theme of that part of the book. So totally. it all, it all makes perfect sense. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Done. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, even in terms of the layout, dude, like, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I did my best. I took a long time to try to, to do the layout. Um, I had, I had some shows in New York and I, uh, spent some time with, uh, some of the people that made Kai Lenny's new book. He actually just made a new book. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
I had some great conversations with them about layout and doing stuff uh, that might bring more weight to my words or my photos. And I learned a lot from that. And so it, like, it's really, um, you know, just in terms of like me going forward, like I still have a lot to learn and yeah. I'm still going to continue to write. And the photo book thing's like incredibly challenging and I want to do, do more with that stuff, but I'm going to keep challenging myself writing. I'll offer um, my own suggestion. Some of my favorite parts of the book were about the people who you encounter on your travels. So Tom Lowe in Ireland, mm -hmm. you referenced Kai Lenny a couple of times, but all that stuff were like little peeks into a, uh, a space that I wanted mm -hmm. to do a deep dive into, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I have those, like even the Tom Lowe, like I have, um, I have like a crazy long, like chapter or two about my time in Ireland with him. Cause I had a two wave hold down in a cave and he saved my fucking life. And I got smashed on the cliff um, at this other spot and he saved my fucking life. There's a photo in my, in my book and I have everything written out like that one. I have all this stuff completely written out. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the stuff that you said, even with Kai Lenny, but <clears throat> excuse me. But for my book, I really wanted to focus on my big wave career yeah. my and my drowning and like really tie that in because, and for one, I didn't want it to be of um, like a list of like where, not like I almost drowned here. I almost drowned here. I almost drowned here. I almost drowned here because it's kind of true. I mean, I have like traumatic ex experiences uh, from a lot of these places, but I don't want that to like, in terms of me writing, I had the most <clears throat> incredible times and with Twiggy and with with Twiggy yeah. in South Africa, with Lowy and Fergal in Ireland, and I want to be respectful with how I write about it. And yeah. these are certain things that happened to me, and I made some dumb decisions that, like when I had the two wave hold down in the cave, I tried to climb up this weird side of the cliff, and the biggest set came and swept me off. And it's part of my thing, but he saved me, and um, I just don't want. Uh, like those guys all treated me so well that when I write it, I want to be confident with everything coming out. And I do actually have completed chapters about all this stuff and I'm just trying to formulate it in the best way. Yeah. That's what I meant. I didn't mean that those stories should have been part of this book, but I think you did a good job at acknowledging those people and those experiences yeah. <clears throat> that made me want to then read that next thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thank you. Yeah, gladly. Um, I'll give you a couple of closing questions and you kind of just teed them up perfectly. I'm curious, what was what has been the best surfing that you've seen anywhere throughout your travels? And then also, what are the gnar what's the gnarliest big wave that you've encountered? Okay, let's start with the first one first. Can you ask that one? Yeah, what is the best surfing that you've witnessed? Oh man. <clears throat> um, there's certain people. I mean, there's a couple people that just blow my mind. Um, if I'm talking like maybe just because I'm a big wave surfer and those are most of my sessions, maybe like Shane Dorian, he's just so radical. He's the best waves kind of come to him and he surfs it. So technically perfect. Uh, Kai Lenny, he's one of the, best surfers I've ever seen in my life. And he's doing stuff now that 
I dreamed of as a kid. Like when I was a kid growing up watching VHS tapes on over and over, I always dreamed of like seeing people backdoor Mavericks or, or, you know, when people started paddling jaws, like what they're going to do when they backdoor it and paddle it, or, you know, if they are going to tow it, what they're going to do. And he's, you know, Kai's backdooring the peak, getting barreled all day, towing, doing aerial 360s, doing stuff that's just next level. So maybe Kai Lenny would be the top, but even Shane and Kelly Slater always blows my mind. And um, there's a lot of younger guys. I mean, there's there's a big list of young guys I'm inspired. Mason Ho is just one of my favorites to watch. And Nathan Florence also, also. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, the first thing I thought of when you said Kai Lenny and Shane Dorian was that they really pick their moments. Like you don't see them put themselves in uh, bad situations very often. And Shane probably did for a number of decades, but now, and I even remember him doing broadcast for the Piahi event. He was in, he was going to surf the event and then he ended yeah. up in the booth and he just said, you know what? I decided this morning, I'm not going to surf it. I just, yeah. I'm not feeling it today, you know? And that's yeah, a mature he, he, decision to make. Yeah. He was one of my, maybe just thinking about like when I was surfing big waves a lot, he was my favorite person that if they turned up, I'd be, you know, just like really excited to watch. Cause he was just, just on it, you know, yeah. all the time. And um, yeah, I had a lot of respect for him. Um, so the second question was what's the gnarliest big wave in the world? Um, oh man, they're all, they're all deadly. Every single one's deadly. You know, Nazare is crazy. I mean, I spent some time with Nick Von Rupp in Portugal and he was nice enough to get me on a ski and I rode it. I actually drove the ski at times and that might've been the most scared I've been out there because I knew if I fell, I could probably die. Uh, Cortez bank was insane because it's in the middle of the ocean and it makes water safety and tracking people difficult. Um, but in terms, I think the best big wave might be Jaws and Map. Jaws and Mavericks um, are both like the top, I think, for me. Jaws, uh, the way it barrels, is mm-hmm. something that I was, like I said, when I was a kid, I dreamed of a really big right that barrels. And yeah. at you know, during my time at Mavericks, I love Mavericks; it's one of my favorite waves. Uh, but I always wanted to drop in and backdoor into a barrel. Uh, and watching all the upcoming big wave guys do that over and over, like pull backdoor the peak and pull in over and over is, is really inspiring because I, I went out to Jaws a few times as a big wave surfer and I was pretty scared because I, I thought the wind was really challenging. Uh, the, the Hawaiian surfers are really good at um, when it's really windy, balancing the side chops, you know, cause you get these really big bumps in the water uh, coming from like all directions and they're just really good at like timing the wave you know like waiting to pop up and going over it where for me it was just more challenging and I didn't get really as much time out there so um, those are kind of my I think the top and for sure yeah Puerto Escondido too that place is insane but it's if it's closing out it can be really deadly yeah um, I want to ask you about that 10-0 Stu Kenson gun mm-hmm. um how many fins does that have? Uh, three fins, thruster. Okay. okay. Can you tell me, I feel like we talk a lot on the podcast about, I interview a lot of surfboard shapers. So we do talk a lot about surfboard design, but I feel like big wave paddle boards are a part of surfboard design that can actually see a lot of improvement. 
Like we've mm -hmm. taken the high performance thruster as far as we can take it, but the big wave gun, like it's, it limits what you can do on the wave because mm -hmm. you need that much volume. It limits mm -hmm. you to really just being able to go straight in a straight line. Mm -hmm. And so there's gotta be some kind of radical improvements that can be made at some point to make the board either more maneuverable or shorter or something. Mm -hmm. um, can you walk me through the design of that board and why? it is the best. Well, power well that board, um, you know, when I first went to Stu Kenson, my shaper who I'm still like really close with, get all my boards from, uh, I just told him I wanted a 10 uh, Zach Wormout kind of from Mavericks gave me some dimensions and I didn't really know what I wanted. And so when I got the board, it felt slightly narrow. Okay. And even to this day, like the, the board is the best board, big wave board I've ever had, because at first I thought it was narrow, but when I got in the lineup at Mavs, it fit the curve of, of the wave perfectly because Mavericks has such a bowl and sometimes it jacks. So if you have to be ready for it to jack and then ready to, to kind of plow through that curve. And if you have a board that goes slow, you might hit the curve and go over the handlebars or this board I'd have like, just for example, I'd have, a, a big wave where I would turn around last second, drop in, and I'm just barely like making it. And the board magically feels like it hits the curve perfectly and I'm mm -hmm. riding it out. And instead of slowing down in front, like you barely get in front of the white water and it mows you, the board would just fly out and I'd get in front of the white water. So I had times where um, it had a, such a good rocker that it would hit the curve of Mavericks perfectly and I'd make it. And then also when I started getting better at Mavericks, uh, I started taking more of a sideways line. And so instead of dropping straight down, I would try to get in early and go sideways. And this board had such a like, um, it was kind of narrow and had just like a really great rocker on it that it just hugged the face perfectly. So I could get low, trim the whole face. And that's kind of what I was seeing Shane Dorian do. I saw him one day out there, take off like underneath the bowl, hug the face and go sideways. He never went straight once. Hmm. And so in terms of the direction I was going, I was trying to, to knife it. And so this board, you know, when I was first starting to make the drop was perfect. And now that I'm knifing it, it's going really freaking fast and it feels good. And so I had a couple waves where I'd go sideways. And I think that um, there is some advances you, my that board did everything i wanted it to do and the only thing I, that would have been different is if i had it like a a bigger one of it so when it was breaking outside the bowl so when it's like six like 60 foot when it breaks outside the bowl it's like 60 probably 60 foot or bigger 70 foot and then you're getting the roll in behind the bowl and so you can ride a different surfboard like pete mills um, Pete Mills wave kind of that was that's like what I've been dreaming of yeah because he he I don't know if you noticed the way he, right when he he had an adjustment when he hits the, like the the trench of the bowl and that's like certain things that that board I'm riding if I'm actually going on a crazy wave that looks like a closeout I might take that sideways long line to get to get a barrel where there might be boards that I'm you know you're, you're riding just to kind of take off and get around and, and ride it um, yeah. but I I think that with that board development and stuff, like a lot of people just don't have time in their life for it. Dude. No. Like, yeah. Like I'm just, I, I hit that point where I believed in this and then I I'm out of the game. Yeah. And so a lot of people kind of get to this point. I think Shane Doran and Kai Lenny, Kai could be leading 
and board design and even uh, Nathan Florence and Billy Kemper because they're all consistently getting crazy waves. So at like Shane, all those guys probably have boards that would be something to look at. I haven't seen him for a bit, but Kyle Lenny's boards are really incredible and he knows every aspect of them. But another- Who's, who's shaping Kai's boards? Oh gosh, uh, I should know this. I don't know. Um, I can't believe I don't know this. Oh man, I should know this. But actually, I don't know. I'm not sure. But even a funny thing with that Magic 10.0, I lost it. I'm not sure if I, in I didn't write ocean? about it in the book. No, I fucking lost it out the back of my truck. Oh like, no. Yeah, it was horrible. It was one of my, like a couple years ago, I was driving back from Mavericks and I always tie my gun in and I did that. And all of a sudden it was like crazy windy, like 30 mile per hour winds. And it gusted the board out from, from my car. And I was driving, I looked in the rear view and I saw it fly out because I have a oh shell. I have a shell and it's tied in, but it blew out. And somehow I'm like, what the fuck? And I saw it. I looked in my rear view. I saw it. It was in a bag, like a big black bag. And it flew out, did like three 360s and somehow like floated into the grass on the side median. And I saw it float into the grass. I'm like, oh my fucking God, my, my magic. I almost had like a meltdown right there. Yeah. So I hit the next exit, turned around, was back in like two minutes. Someone stole it. What? Yes. I almost cried right there. So I was somebody like, who was behind was you witnessed yeah. it and just pulled over and snagged it. Snagged it, dude. I pulled, I was there in like two minutes and someone fucking grabbed it. And I was like, I almost cried right there. I was like, board, no. what are the odds that they even had a vehicle that could fit that board? It was my most magic board. And I always lock it in with a, like this carabiner and all this shit, but it blew, everything blew out somehow with this 30 gust knot of, like it, blew out the back of my shell and the wind just torque. I don't fucking know. And That's unbelievable. Yeah. So it's fucking gone. And my friends that all live in Santa Cruz posted stuff on Facebook and Craigslist to try to find it for me. And it just, it's gone, man. Let's put a word out right now. What did, what color was it? What, uh, it had blue, it had blue and green rails and white top and it had like a blue bottom. Okay. But it's a 10 thruster, Stu Kenson, do you see anything completely painted over? Right. Kind of narrow. It's my fucking board. <laughs> There's not a lot of places in the world where you could ride a board like oh that. Oh my so. God. If I ever see someone riding it, I'm taking it. Totally. I'm um, just taking it back. I mean, has Stu tried to replicate it? Um, he's made, yeah, he made me uh, uh, a couple boards since then. He made me a 9.6 and a couple 10.2s for bigger Mavericks yeah. because I didn't ask him to replicate it. I'm like, this thing's, it was, an old school Clark foam blank PU, just really thick stringer. And the thing, I didn't really need him to replicate it. So I had to make me a smaller nine, six and nine, four for smaller Mavs. And then like two ten twos and the ten twos were quads. And that was for bigger uh, Mavs. So I could roll in and take that sideways line. Was Pete Mel. I know Pete Mel's was um, shaped by Britt Merrick, but was that a quad? He kind of surfed it like one, you know, the way he was yeah. kind of cut, the way he was cutting across the face like that. And when he hit the bottom, um, I don't, you know, it looks like it. Sometimes when you got to go, when you go sideways, you got to just hold it the whole way. It could have been. Yeah, I forget. Um, um, but so what was the, one of the questions I always ask everybody is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? 
Ado Single Fin by Stu Kenson. It's just this board that um, like three, probably four years ago, I went to just my shaper Stu and I've always loved the, the look of the Jerry Lopez Single Fin. And so I had him shape something kind of that looked like that, that I could write at Win and See every day. So a pointy, um, pointy? Yeah, yeah. It's like got a... Um, Pipeliner kind of thing? Yeah, it's just pretty. It's an 8 It's got it, It's all white with a red single fin. And uh, I love it. It's great for uh, Win and See on a lot of days. I surf every day. So a lot of days I don't want to, I really don't want to try hard and do turns or do anything. I'll just ride that and cruise. It's really good for barrels. And especially in the winter when the waves are bigger, it just, it's, actually really good in the barrel yeah so that's that's been my everyday board for like four years probably crazy i would not have guessed that um at the end of the book you write that um you thought by writing this story down and staring at it on paper that it might start to chase away the demons that visit you every night which is a reference to the dream that you talked about having recurring Mm -hmm. are you still having that dream yeah i had it last night so the book, I woke didn't, a bit like, I, the book yeah, I didn't up, do its job of quality. No, it did. Dream. I've been, no, I've just, I've been having less dreams. Okay. Like I've been having kind of less and it's really taken the tension and I'm having less of them and they're not as like anxiety stricken or panic inducing. Okay. Um, I think being open is really, um, it has helped. It, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it was, been an emotional year releasing it writing it putting it out and so i think it has really it has helped me um i i feel like i'm slightly having better dreams um more consistently but i do like last night i woke up at um 3 a.m i was in the sweats i have a mouth guard that i wear every night because i grind my teeth my head hurt from grinding my teeth so i got up this i mean i've been up today since about 3 or 3 30 because of that nightmare and a lot of times i just um don't want to go back to sleep I just like, and since I don't drink right now, I get up, I like to write and, and work on my kind of creative projects or whatever. Good. So like, like I had it last night and yeah, I mean, they're, they're repetitive and they're very traumatic and they work me emotionally. But I think since I'm doing way better now in this past, like, you know, year or even six or eight months doing really well that everything everything's doing better my emotional levels like i'm way more stable and i understand how to control myself better and so i think just um you know naturally things are are getting better glad to hear it sounds like through writing you have a really healthy way of you know uh, getting some of that energy out yeah yeah i mean you know i started it like when i thought i was losing my mind just to kind of not start it i've been writing every trip but i really try to focus and get all my best stuff down on paper um, more consistently. I was more desperate about it because I thought I was losing my memories. And then now it's grown into more of like a, a better creative thing to get my brain um, kind of functioning, remembering and thinking about kind of new stuff. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on the book. Thank you for sharing the story. I think this has yeah. been fascinating. Thank you. No, I appreciate your time. And um, yeah, I appreciate everything. Dude, I actually have um, a friend, Justin, and uh, my buddy Shane, uh, Shane Long, they actually listened to you and they're just like hyping you up. So I thought Sweet. I'd give them a, just a small shout out. They're just my random surf buddies. No right on, Derek. Well, thank you again. Oh, dude. No, I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm happy just to get this out there. And if anybody um, is kind of going through a tough time and is confused about their concussions and stuff, they can always reach out to me on social media and I can always help 
guide you to the best resources because I do actually have a network of people that I've been working with and and um, kind of around just all around the U.S. and even Hawaii. So if people need kind of help with anything, I can help guide them. That's huge. Cool. Right on, Derek. Have a great yeah, thank you. rest of the day. Yeah, gladly. Yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you so much. All right, man. Cheers. When, when you were blind, you touched things for their shape. Have faith in wordless knowledge. Have faith in wordless knowledge. the rain made of our days before we knew we are swimming in the rivers of the rain derekdunphy.com at derekdunphy on instagram i will of course link to both those things on surfsplendorpodcast.com as well as derek's book waking up in the sea uh, well worth grabbing for yourself i would also consider it as a christmas gift this season as we are geez less than two months away from christmas already so um go and check all of that stuff out it's a real pleasure to hear from derek and i really appreciate him sharing his story so candidly and so beautifully by the way through the book so thank you listeners for everything thanks for the support last month in that um timponi giveaway that we were doing that support is uh, instrumental in us running the business here so for five bucks a month you can set up support on surfsplendorpodcast.com I got back with Scott Bass uh, this week to discuss the Red Bull Big Wave Awards, among many other things. I will be reconvening with Chaz later in the week for an episode of The Grit. So go ahead and go grab those. And then, of course, I'll be back here next week for an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. So this is, of course, David Scales saying thank you and reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and, of course, shred on. The city was a fist I lived on its wrist And I took myself a good long look around And the river grew higher and wider Deeper and darker As I was closing in And it led me Let's get in We got in the river and it groped us Made us think of sex between us At a time in our lives Oh, before we knew Doing all the
upset Lying in bed About all the things I could think of Oh, at the end of the day But of all the places my mind could go It always comes loping back to you Now 